Good morning, everyone. It is, it is good to be with you here this morning once again for us to come to this point as we want to focus on the Word of God in the eternal words of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and knowing that the ministry of the Word is so profitable to our spiritual walk, to our souls. This morning, we are concluding our 2021 summer series in the book of the Psalms. Uh, that series is coming to an end today for this season. Next Sunday, we will resume our series on thinking biblically, and we trust that you will be blessed once again uh, by the series on Sunday messages on thinking biblically in, uh, about various topics. And I also would like to encourage you to come out on Thursday evenings as we have resumed our Thursday night services, but in a special format. It is just one hour. It's just from 7 to 8, and it is on a very special topic about how to share your faith. There is absolutely nothing more important than each and every one of us sharing our faith with those whom we know are lost. And we have the word of life, and it is so important to share with our family, our co-workers, our neighbors, uh, the way of salvation in Christ Jesus. So it is a quick hour if you would be able to be here with us. Join us this Thursday as we will continue that uh, series uh, on how to share your faith. But today, as I mentioned, we are going to conclude our series for this year on the book of the Psalms. Our psalm for today is Psalm 32. If you are able, would you please stand with me for the reading of God's word in Psalm 32, where the Bible says, How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as with the fever heat of summer. Selah. I acknowledged my sin to you and my iniquity I did not hide. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Selah. Therefore... Let everyone who is godly pray to you in a time when you may be found. Surely in a flood of great waters they will not reach him. You are my hiding place. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with songs of deliverance. Selah. I will instruct you and teach you in the way which you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Do not be as the horse or as the mule which have no understanding whose trappings include bit and bridle to hold them in check. Otherwise, they would not come near to you. Let us all read these final verses together. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but he who trusts in the Lord, loving kindness shall surround him. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous ones, and shout for joy, all you who are upright in heart. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for once again bringing us to this point of our service where we focus on your word, Lord, the eternal words in which your name is praised, is glorified, and through which we know your ways, Lord. 
We praise you, Father. May your name be glorified in everything we say. May your name be glorified during this time where we worship you, we praise you, and conclude this service, turning our attention to your word. Bless us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Based on these verses from Psalm 32, I would like to share with you a message on this topic. Spiritual lessons. Spiritual lessons. King David, he wrote Psalm 32. And he also wrote Psalm 51. Do you remember the story behind these two Psalms, Psalm 51 and 32? David wrote them after he had committed adultery with Bathsheba and he had orchestrated her husband's death. We know that from 2 Samuel chapter 11. After the prophet of God confronted David about his sin, David composed Psalm 51, begging God for forgiveness. Sometime after he wrote Psalm 51, he then writes this psalm. He writes Psalm 32 to relate to people the lessons, the spiritual lessons he had learned during his experience with sin, forgiveness, and restoration. And so let us go back to the beginning of the psalm where David is starting his lesson, his first lesson, and it is the lesson on forgiveness. He begins in verses 1 and 2, speaking on the lesson, about the lesson on forgiveness. Verses 1 and 2 say, How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. You may recall, I mentioned this to you before, that that word blessed in the original Hebrew literally means happy. It speaks of the joy, the spiritual satisfaction one has when he is blessed by God. Blessing equals happiness. And so out of his own personal experience, David is telling us that the believer in God will enjoy happiness in two specific circumstances. First, you will enjoy happiness when he, the Lord, when he forgives your transgression and when he covers your sin. He says, you'll be blessed if you are he whose transgression is forgiven and whose sin is covered. The question is, what would you say is the difference between transgression and sin? We know that both trans transgression and sin are similar words that apply to disobedience to God. When I disobeyed God, whether I transgressed or I sinned, I have disobeyed him. But the Bible does point to a difference between those two words, transgression and sin. Notice in Joshua, in chapter 24, verse 19, the Bible says, Then Joshua said to the people, You will not be able to serve the Lord, for he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgression or your sins. We also see in Isaiah, in chapter 1, in verse 28, the Bible says, Transgressors and sinners will be crushed together, and those who forsake the Lord will come to an end. We see the difference between transgression and sin, not only in the Old Testament, but also it carries on to the pages of the New Testament. In Ephesians, in chapter 2, in verse 1, we see, As for you, you are dead in your transgressions and sins. 
So it is clear that the Bible makes a difference, makes a distinction. The Bible differentiates transgression from sin. But the question still remains, what is the difference? We could say that transgression means to trespass. Transgression means to go beyond the boundary, to go beyond the limit. If you have someone standing on your lawn, if you have someone inside your property, and that person was not invited by you, you may call the authorities and say that you have someone trespassing. They crossed the line. They were not supposed to do that. Transgression is when you do something that you are not supposed to do. Transgression is disobedience by commission. Sin, on the other hand, is disobedience by omission. Sin is when you don't do something that you are supposed to. You miss the mark. Like James says in James chapter 4, verse 17, that when you do know the right thing to do and you do not do it, you commit sin. And so transgression is when you do something that you should not have done, and sin is when you don't do something that you should have done. In reality, the difference between transgression and sin depends on your perspective. It depends on how you look at it. And let me illustrate to you. If I am supposed to stay behind this pulpit, if I am supposed to stay behind this podium, and there is a line here in front of the, in front of the pulpit that I am not supposed to cross, I am supposed to stay here. The moment I do this, I have crossed the line. I have transgressed. I have done something that I should not have done. But at the same time, you could have said that I've sinned. Why? Because I didn't do what I was supposed to do. I didn't stay behind the pulpit. Therefore, transgression and sin are simply two sides of the same coin, the coin of disobedience. And that is what David means when he says, how blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Whether you transgressed or whether you sin, you are disobeying the Lord. Two sides of the same coin. But I also want you to notice this. He says, how happy, how blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven. And what else? He says, whose sin is covered. David refers to sin as being covered. In the Old Testament, sins were only covered by the blood of the animal sacrifices. Sin was covered but not erased. A new blood sacrifice needed to be made every time there was new sin. That is not the case for you and I in Christ Jesus our Lord. The blood of Jesus Christ doesn't simply cover our sins. But the blood of Jesus Christ erases our sins completely. Thank God that you and I now in the New Testament, we do not need to offer the blood of an animal sacrifice every time we sin. Because the blood of Jesus Christ has cleansed us, has, has forgiven us our past sins, our present sins, and the blood of Jesus Christ even has paid the price for our future sins. The Bible tells us in Hebrews in chapter 10, every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. The sins are only covered. But he, Jesus, having offered one sacrifice for sins once and for all, for all time, he sat down at the right hand of God. 
The blood of Jesus Christ has paid for all of our sins. Of course, every time we sin, we do not need to offer an animal sacrifice, but we do need to repent and confess our sins with the confidence that Jesus has already purchased the forgiveness for our sins through his blood once and for all at Calvary's cross. David says, how blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. In first place, we are blessed. We are happy by knowing that our transgressions and our sins are forgiven in the eyes of God. But next he says that how blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. In second place, he says that we will also be very happy in the second circumstance. When the Lord does not impute iniquity and he sees our spirit as having no deceit. What is iniquity? Iniquity in the Bible is called lawlessness. Iniquity could be said to be the cause of every transgression and sin. Iniquity is the rebellion. It's the guilt we carry before God. It is our disobedient spirit in our hearts. It is something that comes from our unredeemed flesh, the only portion that still will one day receive salvation but has not received salvation yet. We still remain in this flesh and blood. Only when we are glorified and we get to heaven, we will be set free. We will be rid of this fallen flesh. Iniquity abides in our unredeemed flesh, and it is the cause of every transgression and sin. The problem is not that we are tempted by iniquity. The problem is when we fall into iniquity and we commit transgression or sin. James chapter 1 says, But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. Iniquity is fueled by that lust. Iniquity is that impulse, that disposition, that inclination. Transgression and sin is the result of it. And so, as we said, if we act on our iniquity, we will commit transgression or sin. The Bible tells us in 1 John chapter 3, everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness or iniquity. And sin is iniquity. We could consider iniquity to be the root, transgression and sin to be the fruit. It is important to understand that iniquity is our rebellion, our guilt before the Lord our God. The Lord Jesus tells us this in Matthew chapter 7. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice iniquity. You practice iniquity. You act upon that impulse, that inclination to disobey God. We are all tempted, but as I said, the problem is when we fall into it and we commit transgression or sin. David says, how blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered, but also how blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. How blessed each and every one of us are when the Lord does not impute iniquity to us. He doesn't charge us with that rebellion. But on the contrary, through Calvary's cross, because of the righteousness that Jesus Christ obtained for each and every one of us, we have imputed righteousness. It is that blessed, that holy exchange of 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. That he who knew no sin, he became sin for us, so that we might become the very righteousness of God. We are happy, joyous, we are blessed spiritually 
knowing that the Lord does not impute iniquity to us, but he sees us as pure and clean, no deceit in our new spiritual walk, in our new spiritual life in him. The Bible tells us in Exodus chapter 34, the Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, is slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. Isn't that good? He forgives the root and the fruit. The Lord forgives the trilogy of our disobedience, our iniquity, our transgression, and our sin. Now David not only spoke about the lesson on forgiveness in Psalm 32, but he also now speaks about the lesson on sinfulness. And this was a very important lesson that he learned and he's passing on to the listener of this psalm. David learned this lesson on sinfulness for as long as he was recalcitrant in his sinfulness. For as long as he did not confess his sin. For as long as he remained unrepentant, David was suffering under the weight of his sin. And he was suffering four specific consequences for not repenting before God. And the consequences were emotional, physical, spiritual, and behavioral. He was suffering emotionally, physically, spiritually, and behaviorally because he was unrepentant before God. These are the four consequences for unconfessed sin in the life of the believer. And we are going to go over each and every one of them as he shows us, in, as he will tell us in Psalm 32. The Bible says in verse 3 and 4, When I kept silent about my sin, when I remained unrepentant, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as with the fever heat of summer, Selah. First notice that David says, my groaning all day long. He was groaning all day long because of unconfessed sin. And that word groaning means to cry aloud. He was suffering inside. He was suffering emotionally. An unbeliever will sin with a sense of impunity and will have no sense of shame before God. Because as we saw in Ephesians 2.1, an unbeliever is dead spiritually and sin doesn't matter to him. But not to us who are believers in Christ, the Holy Spirit within us. We know through that that when we fall into sin, we suffer emotional pain for disobeying God. We feel the weight of, emotional, of that emotional consequence in our lives. If you are a believer and you are in sin, you cannot be at peace. If you are a true believer, you know exactly what I mean. Anytime you are in sin, anytime you experience a position of consistent sinfulness in your life, you cannot rest until you come clean before the Lord. He was suffering emotionally for as long as he remained unrepentant. And that emotional consequence was causing a second one. It was a physical consequence. He said, my body is wasting away. The emotional burden of unconfessed sin was taking a toll on David's physical health, was taking a toll on David's body. The Bible is specific in telling us that when we sin, yes, that may lead us to sickness, to illness in our physical bodies. The Bible tells us in Proverbs chapter 3, Do not be wise in your own eyes, fear the Lord, and turn away from evil. 
It will be healing to your body and refreshment to your bones. Of course, this does not mean that if I am sick, it is because I am in sin. God may allow an illness to come to the believer's life according to his purposes and for his glory. Just think of the man of John chapter 9 verses 1 through 3. That man was born blind. And when the disciples saw him, the disciples asked Jesus, Rabbi, who sinned that this man was born blind? Did he sin or did his parents sin? You remember what was Christ's answer? The Lord said, neither this man nor his parents sinned, but it was so, so that the works of God might be displayed in him. So if I am sick, it does not mean that I am in sin, but if I am in sin, I may become sick. That is a biblical principle. Every single month when we partake of communion, we display that principle on the screens in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 30, where it says that if I partake of the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner in sin, with sin in my life, with unconfessed sin, with an unrepentant position, I may become weak, I may become sick, and it says I may even die. Remember the man from... John in chapter 5, he had been sick for 38 years, and he was lying by the pool of Bethesda hoping to be healed. One day Jesus appears and he comes to him and he says to that man who had been sick for 38 years, get up and walk. And immediately the man was healed. But do you remember what Jesus said to that man when he later saw him inside the temple? Jesus said this to him in John 5, 14. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, Behold, you have become well, but do not sin anymore, so that nothing worse happens to you. Look, you are healthy now, but hmm, stop your life of sin, or something worse is going to happen to you. So yes, it is a general spiritual principle, biblical principle, that if I am sick, it does not mean that I am in sin, but if I am in sin, yes, I may be sick. And this is exactly what David is telling us was a second consequence for his unrepentance, for his unconfessed sin. He says, when I kept silent about, about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. But thirdly, David also says, for day and night your hand was heavy upon me. Your hand, Lord, was heavy upon me. The third consequence that David was experienced for lack of confession, lack of repentance before the Lord, was a spiritual consequence. The hand of God, the hand of the Spirit of God was heavy upon him, bringing conviction into his conscience. This speaks of the conviction that the Holy Spirit of God works in the life of every believer. Of course, in the Old Testament, David had a special privilege of the dispensation of the Holy Spirit in his life by virtue of being king over Israel. But that was not the normal experience for all the Old Testament saints. Only to us, believers of the New Testament, only to us is the Holy Spirit given freely with an indwelling ministry. The Holy Spirit of Christ works within us and abides within us. Every Christian is baptized in the Holy Spirit at the moment of salvation. And therefore, the more you know the Bible, the more you know the Scriptures, the more the Holy Spirit within you will guide you and convict you of sin. Will bring heavy conviction if you are in a position of sinfulness in your life. 
The Holy Spirit of God does that. Just read John chapter 17, verse 17. He convicts us and he sanctifies us through the power of the word of God within us, the word of truth. It is essential that each and every one of us as Christians that we grow in our knowledge of the Bible. You must think biblically to act godly. But lastly, David says that not only he was experiencing emotional and physical and spiritual consequences, but he also was experiencing a behavioral consequence. He says, my vitality was drained away as with the fever heat of summer. My vitality was drained away. That word vitality there in the original Hebrew is the word lashad. And you know what it means? It means juice. Literally, David was saying, I got no juice. I got no juice. My juice evaporated as with the fever heat of summer. What does, it, what does that mean in our modern vernacular? It means I got no oomph. I got no strength. I got no pep in my step. My behavior has changed. I'm not the same. I'm just a shell of myself. That's what sin did to me. You see, you see sin offers you much pleasure at the beginning. But at the end, it will chew you up and spit you out. It will leave you empty and defeated. You are not even going to recognize yourself. Like David, you end up saying, I got no juice. And so at the end, as he describes the four consequences of his unrepentance, David says, Selah. Now that exclamation in the Hebrew, none of us are, is able to say specifically what that exclamation means exactly. But it could be that Selah it was a term calling for the listener or the singer of the psalm to pause, to stop, and think about what has just been said. In other words, Selah, stop here and think about what you have just heard. Do not rush through it, but think about it. Think about the price of sin. You will find emotional, physical, spiritual, and behavioral consequences. Selah, think about it and don't forget it. Next, David moves on to the lesson on repentance. After telling us what happened when he remained sinful, when he remained unrepentant and the consequences he suffered, he now says, ah, but I have finally come to my senses, and this is what happened, this is what I learned when I finally came to repentance. When I finally acknowledged my sin and confessed my sin before the Lord and sought his forgiveness. In verse 5, he says, I acknowledge my sin to you, and my iniquity I did not hide. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Selah. Once again, David returns to that trilogy of disobedience, to iniquity, transgression, and sin. Through his ordeal, David had learned that instead of hiding your faults, that instead of hiding his iniquity, transgression, or sin, it is much better, and that is the lesson for each and every one of us, it is much better for us to acknowledge our faults and come clean before God and confess our sins and seek his forgiveness. As Moses says in Numbers chapter 32, verse 23, your sin will always find you out. You cannot outrun God. You cannot hide from him. It is always better to confess and come clean before the Lord, and that is what David learned. I acknowledge my sin to you. I did not hide anything to you. 
And when I confess my transgressions, Lord, finally I received forgiveness. I was cleansed. I was myself once again because I was clean before you by your grace, by your mercy. It is important for each and every one of us, if we do fall, to confess in repentance. We must confess, though, not our remorse, but our repentance. Remorse only makes us feel bad because we got caught. Out of remorse, given the chance, we will do the same sin all over again. Our confession, true confession, involves repentance, a change of mind. I honestly seek the Lord in forgiveness, and I commit to Him that I will avoid sin. Not only I confess, but I surrender to the Lord and I commit to Him and I vow before the Lord that I will not commit the sin again. The Bible tells us in Proverbs chapter 28, He who conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will find compassion. Now someone may say, wait a minute, preacher. I am a Christian, but I am not perfect. When I do fall, I do repent and I do confess, and I do not plan to sin again. But life happens. And before long, I, I sin again. Does that mean that I am not saved? Well, first of all, God forbid that I will answer you. Because it is not my call to tell anyone, you are saved, you are not saved, you are saved, you are not saved. Three years ago, I shared with you a quote from D.L. Moody that speaks to that. Where D.L. Moody said this, urge immediate decision." But never tell a man he is converted. Never tell him he is saved. Let the Holy Spirit reveal that to him. You cannot see when a man receives eternal life. You can't afford to deceive anyone about this great question. I agreed with D.L. Moody three years ago and I still agree with him today. Only God knows for sure everyone who is saved. And the Bible tells us that much in 2 Timothy chapter 2. Nevertheless, the firm foundation of God stands, having the seal. The Lord knows those who are His. Only God knows those who belong to Him. However, did you notice the end of the verse? It says, and everyone who names the name of the Lord is to abstain from wickedness. The Lord knows those who are saved, but as for me, the fruit of my testimony must also provide evidence of my salvation. The fruit of my testimony is not the cause of my salvation, but it should be the evidence of it. It is not our business to call anyone saved or unsaved, but the Bible is clear in telling us that the Lord knows those who are His and our goal and our impetus and our desire is to walk away from sin. The Lord tells us in John chapter 15, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he, the Father, takes away. My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. You say that fruit is not important? I don't believe so. The Bible is clear in the words of Christ that if I do not bear fruit in my life, 
That if there is absolutely no fruit in my life after I have professed that I have been born again, that I have been saved, that I have become a Christian, the Bible says without fruit in my life, there is a very great possibility that I don't belong at all, that I have never been saved. The Lord says, what proves that I am saved? What proves that I am a true disciple? He says there, by this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. What proves that I am saved? The fruit of my life. That does not mean that if I am saved, I will be perfect. But it does mean that your life will be headed in a new direction. What that means is that the Lord is not expecting perfection from you on this earth, but the Lord is expecting a new direction on this earth, opposite to the life of sin. We may never achieve perfection here on this earth, but we must be walking on a new direction on this earth. The Bible tells us in 1 John chapter 2, the one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as Jesus walked. Wow. Now that is perfection. Is there anyone here who ever since you have been saved, you have been as perfect as Jesus in your walk? No, nobody. Raise your hand. This is perfection, which we cannot achieve here on this earth. However, this then becomes to... For us, our direction. Christ-likeness is our direction. That is our goal. We cannot achieve perfection here, but we must be in a new direction here. We cannot achieve this in 1 John chapter 2, and so we fall to 1 John chapter 1. Where he says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This verse is true, not only at the moment of our salvation, but throughout our life of sanctification. What David is, is telling us in his lesson of repentance, I acknowledge my sin to you and my iniquity I do not hide. I said I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. The greatest takeaway here is that it is impossible if I have given my life to Christ, if my soul belongs to him, the greatest takeaway is that the Lord is not expecting perfection but a new direction in your life. For when you do fall, the Spirit of the Lord will convict you and bring you to a place of repentance for you to dust it off, stand up, and begin yet once again. Selah. Don't forget these words, but think about what has just been said. In verse 6 he says, Therefore, let everyone who is godly pray to you in a time when you may be found. Therefore, that is, in conclusion to the lesson of repentance, wrapping it all up, therefore, you must do this. You must do what? Let everyone who is godly pray to you in a time when you may be found. David is simply confirming all the Bible verses that we have just read. That if I am a believer, I will never be comfortable in sin. But the Lord, by his grace and by his mercy, he will always bring me to a place of repentance where he may be found in a time before my death, where the Lord will be found before I breathe my last. 
The Bible says the godly will pray to you in a time when you may be found. The Holy Spirit of God will always work conviction in your conscience through the ministry of the word in your heart. The more, as I said, the more you learn of the Bible, the more you learn on that grace, the more the Holy Spirit of God will work within you, bringing you closer and closer to Christ's likeness. Not perfection, but that is your direction. Verse 7 says, let everyone who is godly pray to you in a time when you may be found. Surely in a flood of great waters they will not reach him. You are my hiding place. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with songs of deliverance. What is he talking about? When he says, surely in a flood of great waters they will not reach him. You are my hiding place. Ultimately, David is painting a picture of judgment. He's saying, if I am godly and if I pray to the Lord, I will seek him in time to seek my forgiveness, to repent before him. He's saying, if I confess my sin, that is a sign that I am saved. God will deliver me from the judgment to come upon sinners, upon those who do not repent and remain in their life of sin. He says, he will save me from a flood of great waters. Perhaps he was even thinking of what happened with Noah. When the flood came to earth, Noah and his family, they were saved in the ark as their hiding place. Notice that David also says, you preserve me from trouble. You surround me with songs of deliverance. You preserve me from trouble, God. Sure, we could say that God, keeps, he keeps us from troubles in this life. But none of us can say that ever since we were saved, we are living a trouble-free life. God does not allow any problems at all to happen in our lives, no. Through many trials and tribulations, we are going to enter the kingdom of God. So therefore, when David says that the godly will be kept from trouble, he must mean the ultimate trouble, the trouble of spending eternity in hell. The trouble of living a life in sin without repentance before God. This is speaking of the certainty of our salvation, folks. This is speaking of the fact that we cannot lose it. But we are kept in the hands of the Lord and he will never let us go. If we belong to him, the spirit of God is within us. And the Lord, as the Bible tells us in Philippians chapter 1 verse 6, he who has begun the good work within each and every one of us, he will complete it to the day of Christ. We belong to God and we are safe in his hands. Now I want you to notice that David was so elated. In having learned the lesson of repentance and being pure and clean before the Lord, that he stopped speaking to the people and he begins stopping directly to God. He says, you are my hiding place. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with songs of deliverance. And, de and God in turn, he responds to David. David says, Selah, let this remain in your mind. Remain in your soul what the Lord has done for you. As a godly person, as someone who has been saved, you are safe in the hands of God. Let me be quick to say, if you are living in sin, if you have never given your life to Christ, I pray that by the mercies and by the grace of God, that you come to the Lord and recognize that you need him as your Savior. 
that you can no longer live in your life of sin. And I pray that this is the moment, this is the time when the Spirit of God will will convict you from within for you to repent of your sins, seek forgiveness, and ask Jesus as Savior to come into your heart. Selah. David was elated in speaking to God about the joy of his repentance and forgiveness. And so God, in turn, he responds to David. In verse 8, the Lord says, I will instruct you and teach you in the way which you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Folks, this is the voice of God speaking directly to David. He was saying, David in the Old Testament, as a prophet of God, he could hear the Lord directly. And to all the ways we see described throughout the Old Testament. But for us as believers in the church age, this is fulfilled through the ministry of the Holy Spirit within us and the power of the Word of God that the Holy Spirit uses to guide us in truth, to guide us in sanctification. The eyes of the Lord will always be upon us. He will never leave us nor forsake us. And so David, so far, he has been teaching these lessons based on his disobedience. And it is the lesson on forgiveness, sinfulness, and repentance. But now when we come to our fourth lesson, the lesson on discipline, God himself speaks that lesson to him, and therefore to all of us. The Lord continues to speak to David, and the Lord says, Do not be as the horse or as the mule which have no understanding, whose trappings include bit and bridle to hold them in check. Otherwise, they would not come near to you. The Lord was saying, do not be like the horse or the mule, the offspring of a donkey with a female horse. Do not be like the horse or the mule. Because as animals, without understanding, they are naturally stubborn in their own ways. And they would not obey the rider until there is a bit inside their mouths. And the trappings of the bridle will guide them and rein them in in the direction that the rider wants to go. Likewise, although we are human beings with understanding, many a times we want to be stubborn in our own ways. We can be sometimes as stubborn as a mule. And we, can want, and we may want to stay in our own ways. But the Lord is teaching David, and the Lord is saying to each and every one of us through his word, that despite the fact that we may be stubborn in our ways, if we belong to him, the Lord will humble us to repentance through discipline. He will discipline me, and he will discipline you. The Bible tells us in Proverbs chapter 3, My son, do not reject the discipline of the Lord, or load his reproof. For whom the Lord loves, he reproves, even as, even as a father corrects the son in whom he delights. As we saw, if I am a child of God, I will not be comfortable in my sin. But not only that, God is saying, I will not let you to be comfortable in your sin either, because I will send my discipline upon your life. If I am saved, the Lord will not allow me to continue in sin, but he will discipline me to bring me back to him. The Bible tells us in Hebrews chapter 12, it is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. This is serious, folks. 
The Bible is saying that even if I am the most immature believer there is, and I am still stuck and stubborn in my own ways, the Lord will always send his discipline in my life because I am his child, and he will always discipline me to straighten me out. There will never be lack of discipline of God in my life if I belong to him, but he will correct me. On the other hand, if I am living in an outright sinful lifestyle and there is no discipline from God coming into my life, I may be in a dangerous position. I may be self-deceived, living one breath away from hell. The Bible says, if I am without discipline, of which all Christians, all believers have become partakers, God does not allow you to simply stay in the filth and mud. God will always bring his discipline upon your life. If that does not happen, the Bible says, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. This is serious. If I belong to God, his discipline is upon my life. And God is dealing with me as with sons, as a son, as a child. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? The lesson of discipline is the Lord God who always guide us to a position of obedience through his discipline in my life. And that will never fail in the lives of those who truly belong to him. Lastly, David brings us to our final lesson today. So far, everything he has taught us was based on his experience with disobedience. Forgiveness, sinfulness, repentance, even what the Lord himself said about his discipline was based on David's disobedience to God. But now David saves the best lesson for last, and it is this, the lesson on obedience. There was much to learn from his disobedience, but the greater lesson comes from obedience. In the final two verses, he begins saying, Many are the sorrows of the wicked. David's first point here is this. When you look at the wicked, when you look at sinners out there in the world, do not envy them because they seem to be having so much fun in the night scene, in the nightlife. Oh, it, it seems to be so much fun. All the pleasures that sin may bring to those who do not belong to God, who do not know Christ. But he says, do not envy them, because in the end, those who live in sin, those who reject God, many sorrows are waiting for them. Just read Psalm 73. But he says, it is much better to obey the Lord. As it says, many are the sorrows of the wicked. But he who trusts in the Lord, loving kindness shall surround him. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous ones, and shout for joy, all you who are upright in the heart. Remember how David began this psalm, saying how happy, how blessed, meaning how happy are those whose transgression, whose sin is forgiven. He, he was speaking of the happiness one has when his disobedience is forgiven. Now he is telling us of a greater happiness that happens to come from obedience. As he says, be glad in the Lord. Rejoice, you righteous ones, and shout for joy, all you who are upright in the heart. Sure, 
We are not perfect, and we may fall on this earth. But just remember, as a child of God, the Holy Spirit will always bring you back to a position of repentance where you confess not out of remorse, but out of true repentance before God, and you commit yourself once again to avoid sin. David taught us many lessons through forgiveness, sinfulness, repentance. The Lord himself reminds us of his discipline that will come into our lives and we will not remain in the filth. But God, by his mercy, he will bring us to his sanctity. He will bring us to a life of sanctification yet once again, time and time, time and again. It is always better to follow the Lord, as he says, do not be like the horse or do not be stubborn as a mule. So many times we want to stay stuck in our own ways, but it is always better to follow his ways. So many times we want our will, but it's so much better, the will of God, to be fulfilled in our lives. During the Civil War, Abraham Lincoln met with a group of pastors for a prayer breakfast. One of the ministers turned to him and said, Mr. President, let us pray that God is on our side. Lincoln looked at them and said, no, gentlemen, let us pray that we are on God's side. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, it is so wonderful to know that we are on your side. That by your grace, by your mercy, you have given us of your salvation. You have blessed us by opening our hearts, opening our eyes, opening our minds to the truth of the gospel, the salvation that we all so desperately needed. And we thank you, Father, for bringing us closer to you, for bringing us into your house, for bringing us to the truth of salvation. And I pray, Father, that your Holy Spirit would continue to minister in the lives of each and every person who is here this morning, each and every person who is, will be watching this or will be listening this later. May your Holy Spirit, Father, glorify your name in the lessons that will be applicable to each and every one of us. And I pray that your Holy Spirit, even now, will be ministering to those who do not have assurance and certainty of salvation, that they will finally come to you and confess Jesus Christ as their Savior. As we pray in Jesus' name, amen.